keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the, by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. The coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the, the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs, that it might not totter. Okay. Now, we've looked at the greatness of God. Now, here's God's challenge to the competition. Coastlands, listen to me in silence, and let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Basically, God is laying down the gauntlet and challenging the nations. Who has the better claim to be God? Jehovah or the idols? And he's challenging the nations. Present your case. Set forth your argument. We're going to have a fair duel here, a verbal duel, and find out who really shows that they are God. Who's God enough to, to do what he does? That, that, and that's very much the tone of much of what we're seeing here. So you see in verse 2, who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? Guess who it is that God... Who, who is the one who's aroused this one? Who's the one who's called this one to his feet? God. Now you don't know who the one is, but you know it's God who's done it. Now look at what this one does that God aroused. He delivers up nations before him, subdues kings... He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he'd not been traversing with his feet. God is the one who's given the strength to this one from the east to conquer nations, to subdue kings, to make them like dust, like chaff. God is the one who initiated his career, who determined what he would do and how he'd do it. Now, do you know who the one is that comes from the east? Cyrus. Now, we don't know that by name yet, and so I don't know if the reader of Isaiah for the first time through would know where he was going with this. Eventually, we will get to the point where Cyrus will be named in this book. Cyrus was the great Persian king about 160 years later that came and overthrew Babylon. But Isaiah already knew who it would be, and God is using what he's going to do with Cyrus as proof that God's in control. 
He's the one who's given Cyrus this power to dominate so easily. There's no opposition that can stand before him. He never has to retrace his steps. All the nations were helpless before him because God gave him the power. So God raising up Cyrus and God giving Cyrus the power to conquer nations and to do all that he does is an illustration of what God could do. Nations, you show me that your gods can do that. That's really the challenge the Lord has here. You know, because God says in the end of verse 4, I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. I am He. God is saying, I am the great God. I am the one who raises up Osiris to dominate the world. And you tell me what the gods have done. Show me their case. That's my case. Comments and questions, disagreements on this section, do or speak. Yes, John. Question. Who, who in righteousness called him to his being? What does that mean? God is the one who brought uh, Cyrus to his feet. He's the one that began his career. Uh, to, and, and really his, his career was a career of righteous judgment on God's behalf. Do you think the children of Israel might be confused when it comes to Jeremiah's time when Jeremiah said that it's going to come from the north when Isaiah is saying that it's coming from the east? Look at, look at, look at 41.25. He's got to come from the north in, in Isaiah as well. From the east and from the north. So it's from the east and the north. Uh, that he comes. I mean, you know, northeast, basically. And didn't those from the east travel into Jerusalem from the north? Yes, although here we're traveling into Babylon, but I think probably from the north there as well. There's a slight chance that from the north has come to just mean the direction the conqueror comes, but I think probably we should see Persia's east of Babylon, but actually coming in and invading from the north. I think that's probably likely Babylon's day. What can the nations do to deal with the conquering power of a god raised up Cyrus? Well, the coastlands have seen in verse 5 and are afraid. They, the ends of the earth tremble. So what do they do? You know, what does the world do when it's scared of what God's doing? Well, here's what they do. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. You know, that's, that's about the best they can do. You know, kind of try to you know, bolster their brother. Be strong. Be, be, be courageous. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil. Saying of the soldering, yeah, it's good. Yeah, you, you both, both, both my God real good there. I mean, that soldering really going to hold. You know, and he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. You know, that's basically the best the world can offer. You know, some pats on the back to try to bolster their courage and try to get a really good, strong set of gods made. You know, that will really stand fast and not move. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's how they respond. I mean, that, that's their side. That's, that's, that's their answer to our great God. What do you think? 
pathetic, don't you think? <laughs> Comments and questions through verse 7. Jake? I think you can hear the coastline as kind of a uh, person that he's comparing himself to the people there uh, who are... The far-off nations. You know, the nations of the Mediterranean, perhaps, or whatever. But I think here, not overly specific, but, but the nations with their gods. Um, I think this is going a little bit back, but verse 3, uh, when he says, who pursued, who pursued them and passed safely uh, by the way that he had not gone with his feet. I'm a little confused on what exactly that's talking about. I think he never retreats. He just keeps pursuing, and he never has to go back over the same territory twice. And so I think he's talking about Cyrus, okay. just the conquest of Cyrus. Okay, I, I mean, understand. basically, good grief, Persia steamrollered the world. And uh, we've just been studying uh, Esther, you know, later Persian king, Xerxes, you know, says he rules over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, which is pretty much right. And that is a big chunk of territory, especially for that day and time. All right. Anything else? Yes, that's it. It's funny when you compare the nations versus God. And you see a lot of times in this world that the help and the the uh, the help that the world can give is also just to make you feel better. Like you said, just pound the back, make you feel good about yourself. And that's kind of their, their help, these these self help methods. But with God there's true power to change lives and to and to do things uh, in our lives and with us as opposed to just the just the fluff and, and the feel good that the world provides. Absolutely, that's exactly right. You know, we're all into, you know, how to bolster one another's psychology and emotions and, you know, be able to, to feel more positive about this. Uh, and that's what they're trying to do, but if you're not with the Lord, there's nothing much positive to feel, Chris. You look at this, you see how ridiculous, you know, through a trial, put more nails in your idol so he doesn't totter, you know. You know, but... The, the application, how ridiculous, you know, we're in a tough time to bolster your retirement plan. How ridiculous to start stuffing money in your mattress. How, you know, where is our idol? Are we just sticking a few more nails in it? Yeah. Go. Yeah, one of the same ones, whether it's that or think about our nation or mankind in general, our response to Katrina, our response to a threat, 9-11, think in other nations, whether whatever citizenship we have, you know, finally respond to those But whoever responds to think, all right, well, this ought to humble us, and we're just scrapping around here to kind of make something out of what's left, as opposed to thinking, well, we, nothing's going to take us down. And, and yeah. I mean, our response is, you know, beef up the metal detectors and put us through a puffer or whatever. <laughs> and take the shoes off this time. You know, I mean, you know or, or more warheads, you know, more ships, more weapons. Yeah, like, right. You know, I mean, it, there is nothing we can do to have security in anything other than the Lord. It's amazing. How, how quickly we look on a national level, on a church level, on a personal level to human solutions when we ought to be looking to God. You know, we want to find the church isn't doing well, so what do we find? Well, let's find some sociologist to come along and, and give us the techniques for how we can have a good church that's really growing and happy. Well, how about 
turning to the Lord and finding out what his instructions are for pleasing and honoring him and not worrying so much about the church growing and being happy. You know, so often we respond to anything with some sort of putting another nail in the idol instead of what's the Lord's will. Let's turn to him, let's wait on him. And it looks pathetic here, you're right. But when we do it, it doesn't seem so pathetic, does it? So the outcome is pretty pathetic. It reminds me of what said in James, be warm and filled. It's kind of, yeah, great. We keep working, not really doing anything about it, when really if we wanted them to be warm and filled. Well, what do we do when somebody comes to us with a problem? You know, I'm really feeling down, I'm really feeling discouraged, I'm really... Oh, cheer up, you know, things are good, you know, the weather will change, you know, you'll get, you know, whatever. Maybe we ought to say, well, you know, how are you doing with the Lord? Have you got a spiritual problem? What, you know, let's, let's pray, let's study the Bible, let's turn to God. You know, so often we try to band-aid people's problems and make them feel happy and not really deal with their, their relationship with God, which is the thing that will really strengthen them, JP. Uh, um, so then, uh, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. 
Do not anxiously look about you for your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you shall be as nothing and will perish. Yeah, through 13. Okay. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God, who will hold your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Alright, so in 41.8, this is the comfort for God's people regarding their enemies. And you see, in contrast with the panic of the idolaters in 5 to 7, that, that he says to Israel, you're my servant, I've chosen you. You're the descendant of Abraham, my friend. So clearly God has a close, favored relationship with them. He's taken them from the ends of the earth, called them from its remotest part. And since he has made them his servant, he's chosen them, then how can they face their enemies? What does he tell them not to do in verse 10? Fear? Yeah, don't fear. Don't. Don't freak out. Yeah, don't freak out. That's a good way to put it. Don't freak out. Don't worry about it. Don't anxiously look about you. You know, you think of somebody who's kind of paranoid, who's kind of, you know, always looking around, trying to find, you know, where the next attack's going to come from. He said, no. You don't need to do that. Why not? God is helping. Yes, I am with you. Reminds me of the Gospel of Matthew. What does it begin with? It begins with the birth of whose other name was, which means God with us. It concludes by saying, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world, the earth, and uh, the world. And in, in the middle of it, Matthew 18, 20, uh, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be with them. You know, with you also. And so, you've all you've got God's presence. Jesus' presence. And when you've got that, then you have nothing to worry about. He says, I'll strengthen you, I'll help you, I'll hold you. You know, if you've got God strengthening and upholding and being with you, what do you have to worry about from enemies? Seems like a pretty good security policy to me. What about them? What will happen to them in verse 11 and 12? Shamed and dishonored. Yeah. Now, now notice 11 and 12. I want you to kind of see how this goes. Look at the description of the enemies in 11 and 12. It starts by talking about those who are They're what? All right. Incensed or angry with them. And then what did they do in the, the final part of verse 11? Contend. They contend with them. So they were angry. They contended. That may be legally contended with them. And then in verse 12, they do what with them? They quarrel with them. And then the latter part of verse 12, they... Make war with them. So they were angry with them. They contended with them. They quarreled with them. They make war 
start with this. What do you see happening as you proceed from one description to the next? Yeah, it's, it's becoming more intense. You go from being angry to putting a lawsuit on them to actually making a fight to making war with them. Now look at what happens to the result as we keep going. He says in verse 11, they will be shamed and dishonored and then they will be Now, end of verse 11. They'll, they'll, they'll be like nothing. They'll perish. Then in 12, you won't, find you won't even find them. And the latter part of 12, they're not existent. Do you see that the more aggressive they become, the more impotent they become? They just get weaker and weaker to the point they just, they're not there. So, Shame on the nations if they try to fight against God's people. Because the more they try to fight against God's people, the more they just vanish into thin air and they're not even there anymore. You see how God provides security for his people. And so he says in verse 13, I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do we ever have situations in which we fear Do do we find to be afraid of? Rejection. Rejection. Do you ever fear rejection? You ever fear somebody's gonna laugh at you? Somebody's gonna think you're kooky or whatever? Well, how should we deal with that? Well, I think this passage would help us. Do not fear them. Look at God being with us. Look at what He can do for us. Look at how they vanish. Before God? I mean, if we could really apply this, that's my problem. I fear rejection. You know, I'm intimidated. It's a shame. It's ridiculous. And these kind of passages give us the strength and the motivation that we need to have courage in the face of terrible things like they might make a frowning face at you. Or, you know, they might actually say something sort of negative towards you. You know, or whatever that, you know, traumatic event might occur. And so, you know, if, if this was comforting to Israel in the face of superpowers trying to mow them down, surely it can help us in the face of, you know, some rejection. Comments and questions through verse 13. The strength of this itself is do the right thing in response to Yes. We can we can go beyond just not being afraid, can't we? Other thoughts? Dan. We kind of think sometimes we're a little bit, uh, like I said, a little timid about speaking up about our faith. You know, because we think, oh, well, you know, we think of all these other different uh, religions or other other kingdoms that have well, their king that's you know they're a great warrior, perhaps, or maybe it was some sort of great god that could you know shoot lightning down. But our, our, our savior. And the person who comes to save us died in a humiliating kind of way. But after reading these, these chapters before this, we see that this, this is great God who, who no one can do anything without him willing it to be. And therefore, what do we have to be afraid of when this, this guy who is able to make everything, who has created everything in this earth and, and sets everything in motion, got our back? There's, there's nothing that we can fear or 
person who made all this great stuff, God, it's like for us. Amen. That's a real encouragement. It really makes a difference. Other thoughts? Cliff. Remind me of what Paul wrote in uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 28 through 32. He told us that you know, all things were good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And then he talks about how he foreknew us and predestined us and called us and then justified us and sort of glorified. And he said, you know, if we have God, then who, if, you know, what, what do you say about these things? If we have God, if God's for us, then who can be against us? You know, after, you know, he spared not his own son and offered him up for us all. How can he not give us freely all these things? Amen. That's a powerful passage, and that's exactly right. Those passages ought to give us a spirit of victory and courage to face any kind of ridicule or rejection that we might be worried about. Anything else? Yeah, right. I think a lot of times we're worried about what other people are going to think of us. Like about how, oh, he's, he, he's telling people about God, but he's uncool. I mean, I wouldn't do that. Amen. That helps a lot if we can do that. Yes, sir. I know. I know what I mean. I can. I can go evangelize to people that I do not know and will probably never see again a lot better than I can my best friend who is lost. I, I'm afraid of losing what I have rather than keeping my God. And 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 at the same time, you can also be afraid of acceptance too. Uh, of somebody that, that you're trying to, you know, just get to study with you, and then you're, you're afraid that if they accept, that they might be too overwhelming for you. There are a lot of fears that keep me from, from the baseline. And, and you know, I think a lot of us have that feeling about it's easier to evangelize a total stranger than your best friend because you're afraid of losing the friend. So, who are we thinking of, thinking about when we're afraid of losing a friend? We're sure not thinking about their best interest. We're thinking about ourselves. If we were thinking about them or the Lord, we'd speak. Great. You know, I think many times it's not only a fear of rejection, just a feel of failure. You know, that we're not going to be able to do it the right way. But really, you know, that's that's a result of putting
saying that, you know, you're my people. I've never rejected you. Now, he chases them and he punishes them. <laughs> but he never rejected them. Especially God's patience with the teach. Absolutely. Just kind of like going off of what he said. Like a lot of times when I'm going through something hard or I'm really struggling with sin or, or whatever and I feel really guilty and I feel really bad, I think it's really important to know that God loves us and he cares about us and he wants us to do what's right. It's versus us. encourages us. Yeah. Absolutely. That is important. Good thoughts. So that's, you know, the comfort regarding our enemies. What about our personal weaknesses? How can uh, God help us with that? Verses 14 to 16. Here now you learn, Jacob, the men of Israel. I'm the one who helps you to protect the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. New, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. And you shall make the hills like the chaff. You shall win them, and the winds shall carry them away. And the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. And the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob. I love the Portuguese in that. It's, it's actually the, the, the diminutive form of worm. It's like a little worm. A little worm nut or whatever. You know, and uh, that's the point here. You know, when you think about a worm, besides the fact that they're kind of gross, what's the special characteristic of a worm in terms of structure? No backbone. No backbone, no skeleton. It is a worm is eminently squishy. <laughs> Just how much pressure does it take to squish a worm? Probably about as little pressure as you could imagine. You know, I would assume it would take a whole lot more pressure even to like deflate an ant than to squish a worm. You know, an ant's a little crispy. You know. <laughs> talks about them being a worm. He's saying they are extremely weak. They're, they're so insignificant. They're nothing. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like a worm? I'm just, I just have no, there's no strength. You know, just any little pressure would just flatten me. Well, look what he says. He says, do not fear. I will help you. And he says what he's done for them. He says in verse 15, I've made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. Now, I don't think he means that I've made this instrument for you. I think he means I've made you into this. I've turned you, worm, into a huge chopper that will thresh the mountains and pulverize them. It will make the hills like chaff and the storm will scatter. Now, I am not sure how to look at this. Maybe he's saying that here's this worm that faces this mountain. What does a worm do when it faces a mountain? Well, God makes it into this threshing sledge with double edges, and it just chops its way right through the mountain and leaves behind a pile of chaff, dust. But maybe the idea, and this is really graphic if this is what it means, Maybe the idea is the enemies are trying to squish the worm Jacob. 
So they take the mountain and try to throw it on top of the worm to squish it. Wouldn't take a real big mountain to squish the worm. That would be kind of like what the nations would do. Now imagine the nations taking the biggest object they can find and throwing it down on the worm to make sure the worm gets good and squished. But God has transformed his people into this huge chopper that takes the mountain that's falling on them and just pulverizes it into chaff and dust that's blown away. That's what God does for the weakness of his people. When they're a worm, he'll make them a threshing sled with double edges to pulverize the mountains, to chaffize the hills. Because the Lord is strong. That's an amazing thing. When you have this God as your God, what do you have to fear from enemies? And what do you have to fear even from your own personal weakness? However absolutely weak you think you are. And I, I love that passage. It's a graphic image. Comments and thoughts through 16. Yes, Matt. He uses this thing about worms and how we're worms. And, you know, the great guy, he's one that saves us. But in Psalm 22, you know, Jesus quotes the cross. And the psalmist says that he's a worm and no man. So this great God, the one that's saving us, he became the worm too. So he can really save us. He can really do all that. Amen. Good point. Yes, very good. Thing. I was never really good at giving lessons on self-esteem. You know, like, when, 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 uh, Moses, uh, saying, I'm not good enough to do it, God's like, yeah, you're right, but I'll be with you. When saying, I'm not too weak to go and conquer the land of Canaan, God's like, you're right, and you better remember that, too. And you're always going to be able to do it, because I'm with you. So what we really need is not self-esteem, but God's esteem. Yeah, exactly. It's not that we are something, but it's what he can do with us. Shame. I do know the thing in my mind that you're reading about the word. Um, that obviously see ourselves as that, but also kind of tying it back into when we do reach out to other people, who do we reach out to? We reach out to those that would maybe do us some good, or maybe someone that, would, that you see is strong. How often do we reach out to those that no one else would reach out to? How much do we try to teach those that that you can do nothing for us? The Lord constantly does things for us and we can do nothing for Him. How often do we reach out and try to teach those that, I don't know, are so little reputation that we might get rejected just for reaching out to them? Do we care enough for them and the Lord cares enough? Good questions, good point. Dustin? Uh, what, I, what I find very interesting about this whole passage of uh, uh, 8 through 16 is the fact that the, the, the verbs that he uses, he, he says, I will, I will, I will. It's always, it's definite. He's certainly given us a reason to trust in him. Yes, we might be a worm in his eyes, but the fact is he will make us stronger. He will make us larger than that. And it's, it's something very interesting to look at the reason why he uses these, uh, these words to describe what he's saying, because it's, it's definite. Yeah. Other thoughts? Alright, what about when we face difficult circumstances? How can having this God as our God help us? 17 to 20. There's a board in the sea water and there is none. And there's no parts of the church. I'm the Lord of the land. 
I'm the God of Israel, and will not forsake you. I will open the rivers on their heights, and the mountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created this. Alright, so what do you see in 17? People seeking water. Yeah, what kind of people? Needy. Needy. Their tongue is parched with thirst. Here are thirsty people seeking water, and what are they finding? Nothing. That sounds like a really terrible situation. We don't have that much here, you just go home and turn on the faucet. You know, but what if you were out in the desert and there was no water? Everywhere you look, it's, it's not there any longer. The creek has dried up or whatever. It's a desperate crisis. And, uh, you know, wh- wh- what's going to happen? What do you do in that situation? Well, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. Look at what he does in verse 18. What does he do? Circumstances in a very overwhelming way. In fact, in 19, what do you see in this wilderness? Trees. How many kinds? Seven. That's interesting, isn't it? Seven different types of trees that uh, grow up in this renewed desert that's uh, bounding in water. And of course, the two things you would like to have in the desert are water and shade. And so now we've provided for that. God just abundantly handles any crisis. That they may see and recognize, verse 20, and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created. I mean, the point of all this is to recognize God Who else could have done something like this? God should be honored for what he could do. So, you know, we looked at the great God in chapter 40. An incredible God. That's just an awesome picture of God. And 41, okay, what can you do? I'm raising up Cyrus. And he's going to be successful. He's going to conquer everything. And what do the idolaters respond with? Well, they're scared, so they, they talk each other up into some courage, and they build some good, strong idols and nail them down really good. <laughs> That's not much of a response. By contrast, God's people don't have to be afraid. They don't have to be afraid of their enemies. They don't have to be afraid of their personal weaknesses. They don't have to be afraid of adverse situations. So it's, it's just really a comfort, you know, strengthening picture when God is with us. Comments or questions through verse 20? Yes, Doug. I think you say, you know, because people don't have to be afraid of these things. And I think what really strikes me in this last section is we don't have to be, like 17 through 20, 
They're not going to be afraid of our own personal desires. Kind of, you know, we desire friendship, you know, or we desire love, or desire recognition from people. You know, we kind of feel like uh, we need these things to be fulfilled uh, in our lives. And he's saying, you know, you feel thirsty, you feel dried out, and, you know, the Lord can give you all these things. The Lord can fulfill all those desires. You know, I think sometimes you think, like, you know, I need to find someone to love, or I need to do something great in my life to have some first fulfillment. But the Lord can fulfill those desires. Amen. Right. I think a lot of times uh, people think when they pray about something, you know they're going to get it right away. But as we see the book of Mark, if you read it, it says, God says that he'll, he'll provide things in his own time. Not just that, that exact moment when people Yeah, he lets them be in the desert where there's no water. And then at the time he chooses, he provides. Good point. Other thoughts? All right, 21 to 29. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments. The king of Jacob says, let, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare that they, uh, what, they will, uh, what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcomes. Are announced to us, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that, you're, that you are gods. Indeed, do, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are no, of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as potter treads clay. Who has declared this from the beginning that, that we might know? Who, who has declared this? Sorry, we'll read that again. Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know? Or, or from former times that we may say he is right. Surely there is no one who declared. Surely there is no one who proclaimed. Surely there is no one who heard your words. Formerly I said to Zion, Behold, here they are. And in Jerusalem I will give, you, give a messenger of good news. And when I look, there is no one. And there is no counselor among them who, who if I ask, can give an answer. Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. Okay. Back to the challenge for the nations and their gods. Present your case. Bring forth your strong arguments. God is going to give them a fair chance to show what they can do. He says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. Now there's one thing. You know, it's the idol's turn. Sure, make a prediction. Tell us what's going to happen. Or, as for the former events, declare what they were. You know, show us some prediction you've made in the past. Show us any purpose that you have now or that you have had, that you've been God's enough to bring to pass. You know, any being ought to be able to reveal some plans and carry them out. They got any godness about them at all. So he's just offering the, the, the stage to 
the idol gods to come and show. What are you predicting now? What did you predict in the past? What have you been able to accomplish? Well, finally, in the middle of verse 23, he says, Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. You know, do something. You know, whatever it is. You know, do, do what you can. Because, I mean, they couldn't do anything. They, they were just, uh, you know, totally useless. They were helpless. And uh, they can't do that either. So he finally declares in verse 24, Behold, you're of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I mean, not only can they not predict the future, they can't even talk. They can't do anything. They're, they're just totally nothing. He said, you're worthless. You can't do a thing. I'll tell you what let's do. Why don't some people move forward? Because we got some more people coming in. we got some places still here on the front. So why don't several people move up, and that way we'll have more place in the back for people. That'll be a lot easier than having to get chairs or whatever. Thank you. I'll move back a little bit, and that way you won't have to stay in the next. Lately, that's been able to do that. 
You know, GM is a company that's never going to go fly a rocket. You know, I mean, there's not anything in this world that can ever purpose something and carry it out reliably, but our God can. Comments and questions about chapter 41. A lot is challenged. A lot. That's a cool challenge, too. You know, <laughs> which God has got enough to uh, spontaneously combust and <laughs> sacrifice? And, uh, you know, well, I don't think if I made an idol, I'd really want to take up that challenge. Do you? Other comments? Yeah, Alan. Well, what is he talking about in 27 and 29? He's talking about like false prophets or something like that. He's still talking about the gods. Well, in, in 2029, 20, he is. They're false, they're worthless, they're empty. He's talking about the, the, the gods. What's 27 and 28? All right, in 27, I think he's talking about what he has said. You know, formerly I said to Zion, Behold, here they are, and to Jerusalem I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there's no one. There's no counselor among them. So God has purposed things, but he doesn't find anybody among the gods who's been able to carry out any purposes. I think that's the idea. God, you know, God can, God can say what he's going to do, and he can do it. The gods can do nothing. 